Hold on to your 80s hats. 37 years ago today, this song first entered the UK charts and catapulted Richard Drummy and Peter Cox, otherwise known as Go West, to fame. A string of hits followed, as well as a few appearances on a number of film soundtracks, before the duo took a bit of a hiatus. But they reformed in 2001 and have been busy bunnies ever since. So here to talk about his life after that thing he did, please welcome... Richard Drummy. Richard, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Very good, thank you. Very happy to be talking to you. Um, unfortunately, Peter couldn't join us for our chat today, but thank you so much for being here. That's okay. Very much appreciated. Um, we're only a few weeks into the year and you've already been busy performing some special shows, but they haven't all been your typical concerts, have they? Well, it was supposed to be a couple of years ago when it was our 35th anniversary and our manager, who is always inventive as he always has been, always coming up with ideas to, well, you know, to keep the ball rolling. And so we we did the, the Rose Kingston because it's, I mean, it's literally one and a half miles from where I live. We'd, we'd a few days before, we'd done a Q&A at Stables out, out in um, Wavenden. And that was, that was an interesting experience, sitting on the stage with myself, Peter, and an old friend, Gary Crowley, who's very good at this kind of thing. And yeah, so all just to celebrate the 35 years in the business. We always try to do something new and different. Otherwise, people are going to stop coming. You know. So on that note, while we are reminiscing, let's get down to business and enter the nostalgia zone. I guess it seemed to the public that Go West was an overnight success. But when your debut song, We Close Our Eyes, was released in 1985, in reality, it'd been like a long, long time because you and Peter, you'd been friends for 10 years, writing songs, sending demo tapes out, and you were 26 and Peter was 29 when you signed your record deal, which is, I think, positively ancient by today's standards. In the music I industry. always say, you beat me to it. I always say that doesn't happen these days. I mean, uh, and then everyone uh, brings out that lady that won X Factor, um, who was even older than that. Uh, but uh, that, that's a different set of circumstances. Are you talking about Susan Boyle? <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about Susan Boyle. Yeah, I think she was older than 29 when she won that. That doesn't count. That comes from a TV show. <laughs> oh, okay. But actually going going into a, a, you know, starting out, approaching record companies yeah. with demo tapes, that's just unheard of really now if, if people starting out are younger well i i asked the head of a friend of mine uh well i say our lawyer who used to was our lawyer in the, in the beginning a fantastic guy i don't mind so john kennedy he was also a lawyer for live aid and he's he's a great uh he's just somebody i've known forever now and and i remember asking him once i said you know it was probably 10 years ago might have been 20 i said what's the cutoff point for signing a female artist these days and he said 22 wow <laughs> i mean i'm sure there are exceptions to that but that was just an average um so yeah we were lucky to get in through the uh through the door that late we close our eyes was a massive hit but you had to fend off Phil Collins for it because he wanted to record it as a follow-up to Easy Lover, didn't you? Yes, we did. And that was a tough choice, but uh, we were very close then. We actually could see the, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel and our publishers who stuck by us for three years, you know, giving us, uh, you know, renewing the contract each year um, came along and said, 
listen, um, you know, Phil Collins just had number one with Philip Bailey with Easy Lover, and now he wants to do We Close Our Eyes. And we felt a bit guilty because it was obviously, you know, a chance for them to get their money back on us. But we said, look, if you don't mind, we'd rather not do that because that's our lead single. And as ever, you know, ATV Music, they stuck by us. Uh, we're still with them now, although they're called Sonny these days. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we just said regretfully, no, you can't have the song, which was a tough call at that time. Must be a good indicator, though, that your song is going to do well if Phil Collins wants it. <laughs> well, I, I don't want to be arrogant, but I've always, I've always known when we've written hits. I mean, we're, before we couldn't get, you know, we couldn't get a deal. And then I said, oh, come on, let's give them what they want. And I started writing Call Me, which, as I say, is, is sounds like seven ice cream vans coming around the corner, especially the demo. It's super poppy, everything, you know, super commercial. And indeed, as soon as they heard it, they went, yeah, that's the one we've been waiting for. So I do kind of know when we've got a hit. I knew it when we wrote The King of Wishful Thinking. I phoned the record company. I mean, I'm the arrogant one in the band. or, or Well, maybe not arrogant, just confident. I just said we've got a hit. And they went, oh, have you? And I said, yeah, we have. And when they came and listened to it, they said, oh, yes, it is a hit. <laughs> so um, so we know what we're doing. We know what we're doing. So had you released We Close Our Eyes already when you were approached to be on the Rocky Four soundtrack? Yes, we had. Um, not long after, though, we got a call saying Sylvester Stallone really likes this track of yours, One Way Street, which hadn't been released. I don't know how he heard it. Uh, but, you know, there's lots of people in back in the background here all trying to sell our stuff to people um and yeah and that and then we got a call and, and before we knew it we were all in los angeles just flying people in from all over the world australia and what have you to do this song for the rocky four soundtrack so tell me about your encounters with with sly because he was heavily involved with everything rocky related was he even the music yeah quite rightly i mean the, the way i think i found old was to get there and then we went to galaxy studios in la and we sat there and there was a guy in the corner and we said hello who are you and he said oh i'm I'm with the uh, with Sly's, uh, you know, company, and we said, okay, well, we're going to kick off, get going. He said, oh no, 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 no. So just uh, Sly would like you to wait until he comes down to talk to you, and he didn't come down on the first day. So I thought, well, how much does that cost? And we've got all these people all over the place, um, and I think I think he might not have even made it down till very late on the second day, but he was lovely. He came in and he said give it all you got um and and um and he did stick around but he wasn't there for much more than 20 minutes and uh he was very you know it's, it's great stories like that i mean we got in that film because sylvester stallone heard one of our demos um you know it only got released because he liked it it wasn't going to be uh we weren't ever going to release it um so uh yeah he's a good a&r man he's got good ears that's right <laughs> Your first four singles charted in the same year and your debut album spent 83 weeks in the charts and you won Best Newcomer at the Brit Awards in 1986. Yeah. So for two guys who said they never had any real ambition and were just working to get one single out, was it a bit overwhelming for you? Uh, yes, it was. Um, that's been over-egged a little bit that we know, you know, we didn't want to make one single and then stop, but we were always very realistic. And, and when it was played on Radio 1, we stopped the car, listened to it, sort of shook hands. And then we said, well, that's it. We've done it. You know, we were in the music business. Um, so, uh, yeah, we just, we just kept going. Really, That's all we've ever done. We just get, you know, write what we can, when we can, put it out. If people, you know, I have to say while I'm here, you know, any 
fans of the band that are listening. Uh, and this goes for any artist in the world. I mean, without the people listening and buying the records, we wouldn't be here. So thank you guys uh, and girls for uh, for your patronage. I know. Um, I know. Peter said in the past he found fame difficult and wasn't comfortable being recognised. And you did a lot of the talking back then in interviews. I noticed. I'm guessing you took to it better, or was that just an illusion? No, it's always been a bit like that. I mean, I've had to watch it, but. Uh, you know, because people have said in the past, why don't you let him get a word in occasionally? But the way I generally work is, you know, you don't like pregnant pauses on on radio so or, or on TV. So I would normally, once I've answered the first three questions and thought, hello, it's the Richard show again, I would look meaningfully at him while the question was being asked, nodding my head towards him as, he, as if to say, you know, answer this one. And uh, if he didn't say anything, I would leave a split second and then I'll be in because otherwise you've just got two people sitting there like, you know, like rabbits in a headlight. So, yes, I do talk more than Pete. Um, nothing changes. It's still the same to this day. Image-wise, I noticed that if you look at promotional pictures of both you and Peter back in the day, compared to a band like Tears for Fears, who always looked like they'd just been in an argument and weren't talking to each other, you two were either both looking at the camera, um, and if not, you were both looking in the same direction, or one of you is smiling. Generally, you're having a good time. Um, how much of a say did you have over your image and marketing? Um, very little. I mean, there were things that we said no to. We did the whole thing back in the 80s, you know, you get together with the stylist for the video and you go up to South Moulton Street um, and you go into Browns and you see how much, you know, and they say, we well, you're only borrowing it for the day or Johnson's in, which sadly is no longer in the King's Road, which I bought half of back in the day. Um, how comfortable were, yeah, we, we, we weren't that comfortable with our image because unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, but the way it worked was when we come out say playing Hammersmith, uh, Odie, and there'd be, you know, 20, 30 teenage girls are all screaming and going, ah, you know, it's them, you know. And, and we sort of thought, oh, this, it, as great as that was, and they're still, they're now friends, you know, I'm sending people 50th birthday cards now. Um, uh, but, um, you, you know, we just thought, oh, they're going to move on and leave us behind. So the second album was a bit po-faced and a bit more us saying, we're proper musicians, we're not. Yeah, and we, and we never, ever really wanted to be, uh, pop stars, if that's the right. I, I, I still to this day never saw myself. That was just something that happened by, you know, while, while life was going on. And, and we were always trying to, to pop that bubble. Um, and we did it very well with the second album because nobody bought it. They went, where are all those hits that you had on the last record? Yeah. Um, the video for We Close Our Eyes was famous for not only Peter wielding a wrench in a sweaty vest uh, and the dancing wooden mannequins in the background, but also because it was directed by Godly and Cream, uh, famously of 10cc, and cost more to make than your whole first album. But is it true that you still owe the record company money for the videos that you made? Well, they're about for the videos, but we never actually cleared a debt with the record company. I mean, I don't know what it is now. Last time I looked, it was several hundred thousand pounds. And the thing that happens with uh, that you don't realise when you're in a band is that when you get signed, essentially, you know, you are paying for everything down the line. Uh, apart from, I can't remember which one it is, whether it's, I think, promotion you don't pay for. But you're certainly paying for anything 
you know, uh, solid, like the recording of the record, your flights to, to different countries, all the videos. And so, yeah, we, we um, I mean, obviously we did make money elsewhere, because mainly because we wrote our own material. I, I don't know about how people who, you know, didn't write their own stuff made any money. And, and to that point, we made a very expensive second album that didn't sell. So, yes, indeed, we are still in the hole uh, with our original record company, in fact, they they asked us to put something out recently, and we were like, "Well, what's the point? <laughs> you know, like, we're not going to earn anything." So we've had to do a, we've had to kind of come to some arrangement to say, you know, well, half for you and half for us, kind of thing. You had a, a bit of a baptism of fire at the start because you hadn't performed any professional live shows as Go West before we close our eyes came out, had you? Not really. No, the first the first thing we did the first sort of live thing that we did with the band was Radio 1 in concert at the Paris Theatre in London. Then we, that night, we drove up to uh, Newcastle to do the Tube, which was a fantastic break for us. And then we got on a plane and went to Japan and we played Yokohama Baseball Stadium with uh, Culture Club and the Style Council and the Associates. And that, I'm told, was an audience of 30,000 people. So my first proper gig was uh was in front of thirty thousand people but but, it, but it's funny you know generally sometimes people think oh that must be so nerve-wracking or live aid oh that must be so what well, sorry live aid was bad that would be nerve-wracking but you know we play we've played gigs too as i just said thirty thousand people that's far less nerve-wracking than playing a little club with 150 in it where where they're where they're standing a foot away from you you can see their faces <laughs> yeah you can see them kind of yawning or or, or whatever yeah it's uh, that was a baptism of fire as you say to go out and play in front of 30,000 people in a typhoon by the way wow <laughs> yeah very strange when you look back at it now what's your fondest memory i mean do you even remember much of it no, I remember loads of it. Uh, all of it. I, 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 you know, I mean, it got a bit over the top, but so we, you know, we've been trying to do this, as you said earlier, for ten years. So the only time we ever got, you know, stroppy was when we were just that tired. You know, when you just can't help it. You know, like, like when you just snap. But um, no, mostly I just enjoyed everything. Um, all, all through the year, we went. All, we, you know, we went pretty much all the way around the world once. Um, got to go to Japan, got to go to Australia, New Zealand. Um, you know, I could go all around Europe, all around America. So I think probably the high point, though, would be the Brit Award, which um, which we won for Best Newcomer, as it was called back then. It's Breakthrough Artist now. And that was voted for by the public. Uh, it was the only award that was voted for by the public. So we were very, very made up with that. It was lovely and completely unexpected as well. I, I didn't think we were going to win that. But we did. It's time to leave the nostalgia zone now and enter what I like to call the latted zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. It's a bit of a cliche, um, and you, you've alluded to it just now, but you did experience the difficult second album, uh, which, which led to a period in the wilderness afterwards. And you were quite honest about that from like quite soon after it happened, when some other bands would perhaps want to brush it under the carpet? Yeah, we've never been very good at playing the game. I mean, when we were in Los Angeles doing the Indian Summer album, um, I spoke to my dad on the phone and he said, what's he like then? And I said, what's who like, Dad? He said, Clint Eastwood. <laughs> I said, I expect he's very nice, Dad. Why, why are you asking? He said, well, you should know. You live next door to him. And I said, who told you that? He said, it's in the sun. It's in the sun today. 
go west living next door to Clint Eastwood. And I said, that's not true, Dan. I said, they just made that up to make us look more interesting. And, and that happened quite a lot until eventually the record company got sick of us poo-pooing all these stories they made up, you know. And we were never ones for, you know, being seen out and about with supermodels or anything. Um, so uh, that's, why, that's why things like Rocky Four and The King of Wishful Thinking have been so good for us because we won't pump air into our own tyres, you know. If we say we're doing something, we are doing it, you know, and uh, it's the truth. So, um, I mean, I know in America it, 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 it meant that, you know, we it took a long time for us to break America because we just wouldn't play, we wouldn't play that game, you know. We wouldn't say that, you know, we were going out with this person or that person or whatever. We wouldn't say we were living next door to Clint Eastwood. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we've always been like that, though. It's just, I don't know what it is. I just... I'd rather tell the truth. First thing, when we went into record company, as you've already said, you know, said our ages, and they said, okay, Richard, you're 22 and Pete's 24. And we went, no, you can stuff that. All my mates are going to read that tomorrow. They're all gonna, are going to be the laughing stock of the pub. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we, we, we're not, we're not, um, thank goodness we actually had some ability <laughs> that got us across the line rather than us being, you know, young and and uh, whatever i don't know what we were obviously um easy on the eye i suppose they might have said yeah those days are gone though genevieve i can tell you that <laughs> <laughs> i don't wish to pass comments <laughs> well you can you can take 10 years off my age for this interview if you like that'd be great <laughs> You mentioned the King of Wishful Thinking there, which um, which gave you a second bite of the cherry, as it were, when it was used in the film Pretty Woman in 1990, um, and then went on to become one of the most played songs on American radio. But I want to talk about the video for a second, because you threw everything, like literally the kitchen sink, into that video. No, well, that's why that's why that happened. I mean, uh, Paul Flattery, it was Flattery Ukage, uh, uh, FYI, they called the company that did it. They did all of the Genesis videos and Phil Collins stuff, and we were lucky enough to get hooked up with them. And, you know, sometimes you do these videos and you, and you know how much it's costing. You go, well, where's 60 grand gone here? I mean, you know, I can't see where the money's gone other than in the director's pocket. But but with, with, with FYI, they had so much going on. I just went, how are they going to do this within the budget? And I actually said to Paul, I said, and to Jim Yukich, I said, man, I said, this is brilliant. I said, you guys have got everything but the kitchen sink in this. And then like later in the day, they said, oh, we just got one more shot to do that wasn't storyboarded. And then all these kitchen sinks came out of the sky and it was so funny. <laughs> you know, they're such brilliant guys, such brilliant guys. Were you actually in the same room as the elephant or was that spliced enough? Yeah, no, there were no, this is before all of that, you know, clever stuff. I mean, everything was, you know, uh, was as it was you know as filmed and I didn't I don't think I I know it's going to sound difficult to believe but you are concentrating on what you do and I think they were looking for a reaction and I do remember somebody kind of signaling for me to turn around while I was playing and I saw this elephant coming towards me you see me look back at the camera and go oh my god um but the best thing we've had recently which is just these things that just happen that keep the band you know, a float and I'll keep or keep your name out there 
is that uh, Jimmy Fallon and Paul Rudd did it. Yes, I was going to ask you about that if you'd seen it. Oh, man. Well, you go ahead and ask me about it. Then the audience will know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yes. So Jimmy Fallon and Paul Rudd made a shot for shot remake of the King of Wishful Thinking video, complete with your what I can only describe as dad dancing at the start, which is brilliant. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, well, that, I tell you what that was. That was, they said, you know, there was so much to be filmed in that video that day. And, and they said, well, get in a limo. The limo's going to pull up. The Julia Roberts uh, lookalike is, is, is going to open the door. Then you come out, hand the mic to Pete, and he'll start to sing. And I said, okay, great. I didn't think anything more of it. But then as I got out of the car, I thought, well, I'm going to give him the microphone now. Then what am I going to do? And so that that dance, if anybody ever sees that video again, that was not planned. I mean, I, I'm not pretending for one minute it was should win a choreography award, but it was just me going, I was just messing around. In fact, I thought they were going to stop the shot and say, don't do that, Richard. <laughs> don't do that. You're just taking the, the attention off of the singer which is exactly what I was trying to do. <laughs> oh, it's brilliant. Go and watch it immediately now, everyone, on YouTube, and you'll see it. I defy anyone not to chuckle when you watch it. <laughs> no, but I will say this. if you There is a somewhere, if you look hard in, well, I don't think you have to look that hard. Uh, I mean, I don't know if people know who Jimmy Fallon is. I mean, I suppose the closest to him over here is Graham Norton or something like that. But he's on the sh- He's like, you know, the late night, the late night TV host. The Tonight Show. Yeah. And, and for Jimmy Fallon to, uh, and it took them two days to make that video. It took, it took them an extra day compared to us. And they have had to sit there. They, they must have watched the video countless times. I mean, Paul Rudd is playing Pete in it. And the, the, I always call that dance Pete does, the ice skater. He got the ice skater down to a T and, and Jimmy Fallon as well. It's, I actually contacted Jimmy afterwards, and I'm not that he's my mate or anything, but just to say thank you, guys. It was, and he said, oh, no, it's a real pleasure. We love the song, you know. So um, and it's those kind of things that just – we had no idea it was going to happen. It had already happened before we knew. It's just people phoning me from the States the next day saying, you guys were on Jimmy Fallon last night with Paul Rudd. How, how, how long have you known about that? I said, well, about a minute now since you told me. So there you go. <laughs> So after your second album, you moved to the States for a few years to make your third album. And I don't want to open old wounds, but I guess a bit like a marriage, you were living together and working together. And when you're two creatives, that can lead to frustrating times, I can imagine. And ultimately, it led to the band splitting and Peter deciding to go solo. Yes, it did. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a good idea. And I knew it. I knew it right from the word go. I didn't really want to go over to the States anyway. I mean, I do like it, but I've been to LA a few times before and I thought, you know, we've done this before where we've gone to another country to do something and it's turned into six months. Well, this turned into three and a half years in Los Angeles uh, with the because what happened was um, we wrote The King of Wishful Thinking. It got straight into the Pretty Woman film. So there went six months straight away off on the road promoting Pretty Woman, which I'm fine with. Uh, I mean, I wasn't at the time. That, that's before I knew it was going to sell over 10 million albums. Um, so, yeah, we were living together. And, and when they said, when they said, okay, so this is the house, I said, the house? Um, you know, and they went, yeah. I said, so what, what we're both living here. <laughs> and Pete looked at me in a kind of, it's difficult. It's one of them, you know, like my oldest mate. And I, but I, I knew it was a bad idea for us to live together. You want to be able to walk around in your pants whenever you want to, right? <laughs> well, I could still walk around my pants with Pete there, though. But we, we are, uh, Pete will, will admit this, we are, we are very different people. And, you know, I can be quite, uh, you know, 
I am one of those people who go, you know, that thing we discussed yesterday, and he's like, you're not going to ask me the same thing again, are you? And I, I am a bit of a tapper in that, in that point and uh, to, to that degree. And, and he's a bit of a, you've left the fridge open again, you know? So uh, it, it, in the end, you kind of, yeah, it got a bit heated at, uh, uh, in the end and unfortunately though I mean we just had a top 10 single and then one just outside the top 10 and I think I mean I'm being truly honest here I think Pete just you know we've been together I've known Pete since I was 16 at that point I mean we've been together for a long time we've spent more time with each other than we have with anybody else in the world and I think Pete just also saw a, a springboard you know a top 10 single I'm gonna go solo um it didn't work out that way for him um um, which is, you know, that's just the way the cookie crumbles. So, you know, I, I mean, obviously it, it was quite a thing for me at the time because we were on a plane from LA to New York to mix uh, a track and Pete just sort of turned to me. In fact, I think we were in different seats. I mean, <laughs> but at that stage it was like, you go over there and I'll go over here. Uh, and he just came over and said, I'm, I'm going to leave, you know, and I must admit, I, I mean, that night when we got to New York, I just hit every Irish bar in town and ended up on one of those... Um, um, you know, those horse-drawn carriages going through Central Park. I can remember. I mean, it was like, well, what am I going to do now? You know, this is this is what I've 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 worked for for you know since I was a kid. But I had just met somebody uh, around that time in Los Angeles in Los Angeles, Mural, who, who who eventually she was living there. She's German. She she came over to England, and we bought a lovely house. I built a studio. We had two kids. And I've got to say that I wouldn't change a thing now because, yes, I may we may have been much higher up the food chain from carrying on after that, go west. But I probably would have got to a stage where I, you know, I wouldn't have had my kids. And they're the most important thing in my world. So it all went swimmingly as far as I'm concerned. So after the band split, you said you returned to the UK and she said you bought a house, built a recording studio, started a family, lived happily ever after. Yeah. Uh, but you're still a busy bunny. You were writing, producing and working with other artists like Debbie Gibson, Richie Neville, The Five, we talked about before the call started. Billy Myers, loved her album. Um, and I think you had a number one in Poland as well with a song that you co-wrote. I did. You've done your research, girl. Nobody else that talks to me knows any of this stuff. Because you just phoned them all up for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was at a writer's. Uh, I was at a writer's retreat because my publishers, or uh, uh, I'm not sure if Pete was on with them anyway. They had these writing weeks where 15 songwriters would get together, and um, I mean, I was lucky there to meet um, Desmond Child, who Desmond's written "Living on a Prayer." Uh, he also wrote. Uh, Living the Viaca or whatever it is. I can never know what the name of that song is. <laughs> I just come up with anything. Living La Vida Loca. Yes, that's right. Is it? I, I always call it La Vida. I, I'm, like, it's like, I'm like your nan. I like that Beatle band. They're great. Um, so, uh, yeah, so from those uh, from those trips, well, I met Desmond and, and Desmond said, would you like to come over and work with me on the on Billy's album, uh, Billy Myers' album in Miami? And I was there for six weeks, which was great. But I also wrote a song called Trading Places with George Hutchinson and a guy called Mark Chance, which I love. It's one of my favorite things I've written. And he went straight from there to work with Anita Litnicker in Poland. And he sold in a song. Sounds nothing like we did. I mean, she sped it up by about 50 BPM and, and made it more of a punk kind of song. But who cares? I mean, it went to number one in Poland and and 
Who can say they've had a number one in Poland, Genevieve? I can. That's who. (laughs) (laughs) Something else that's been a big part of your life over the past 15 years is going on charity treks. And you've raised more than a million pounds for action medical research trekking in Venezuela, Cambodia, Costa Rica, Namibia. How did you get involved and why has that been important to you? Well, I I must clarify something. I've been involved in raising that money. It was, I did it. um, It's okay. Starting with my manager, um, John Glover, he, he also manages uh, Tony Hadley and ABC, or, or the management company does. And um, yeah, he just phoned me up and said, Rick, uh, I know you like all this outdoor stuff. He said, um, would you would you like to go to Venezuela on a trek with Tony Hadley and Martin Fry? And I went, yes. And he said, well, I haven't told you what it's about yet. I said, oh, well, go on then. Tell me what it's about. So I don't want to take credit for being, you know, this uh, like I'm, you know, it was all my idea. And um, I, I would have done that, you know, I, I just wanted to do it, whatever. But what we did was we took, we got 50, I think the first one was around 50 people who like the band. I hate the word fans. People who come to the gigs and buy the records. About 50 of them came along and I think they had to pay sort of two and a half grand for, for the experience. Uh, and that's what raised the money. Um, we did it four times and it's some of the best days of my life, to be honest, I mean, especially that first one. Uh, just amazing things. I mean, drinking, I, I know this, <laughs> people are having their dinner, but I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm quite outdoorsy. I mean, I was just drinking out of the streams and I was going, well, the water's just come down from the, the mountain over there. It's, it hasn't had a chance to get polluted yet. Um, and I just, I, you know, sleeping out, I remember sleeping out, uh, in the sleeping bag. I said, can I sleep outside under the stars? And they went, yeah, sure. That's all right. I said, there's nothing going to eat me or anything. And no. Um, and this was in Namibia, I think. So I slept out, fell asleep looking at the stars in the morning. They said, wasn't that amazing last night? And I said, what? They said, all those zebras that walked through. And I went, I didn't see any zebras walk through. And they're like, Richard, they must have stepped over you. And I, I mean, I, when I sleep, I sleep. Like a log. <laughs> but just, 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 a lot of, um, just a lot of experiences like that. I, I, I would do it again at a drop of a hat um, if anyone asked me. Don't diminish your efforts, though. You know, you're trekking seven hours a day, still whitewater rafting, doing generally pretty taxing stuff you know your your efforts still contributed to raising over a million pounds well yes no it did of course of course it did of course it did but uh, but i just sorry it's just that you said you raised which which uh yes I, your, I, your efforts have raised yeah let me let me <laughs> just contributed convert, to raising over a yeah, million pounds yeah let me pounds. convert that to we raised because because out, out of every out of everybody i think really john glover is the guy that our manager to this day um, i mean john's managed us for I've just realised, you know, it's 82. So 40 years we've had the same manager, uh, or I have anyway. So, uh, yeah, he's still there. He's still pushing us uphill like he always did. Uh, and so, as you mentioned, Go West reformed in 2000, 2001, when the 80s revival trend first kicked off with the Here and Now tours. And you've been touring ever since, as well as releasing an album and three EPs along the way. Um, and you were all set to celebrate your 35th anniversary in 2020 with some special shows with the South Bank Symphonia Orchestra. But then that little thing called the pandemic happened, which scuppered it. Yeah. Uh, so you must be glad to finally perform them next month and on your birthday. Yes, we're finally doing it, uh, and we are. Uh, in fact, when I come off from talking to you, I'll be on the phone with the arranger, as I have been in, in gaps today, just trying to 
finish the last couple of songs off, uh, get the orchestral arrangements done. Yeah, we're playing. Uh, we're playing um, in Southend on the 16th of March. We're playing uh, Bridgewater Hall on the 18th, and then we're doing Birmingham Symphony Hall on the 19th. And on my birthday, yes, the London Palladium with an orchestra, which is going to be quite a night. You rehearsed for six months remotely with the orchestra. What was that like and how different is it to the the Go West, I'll call it the aggressive synth sound that people are used to? Well, they're working around us. I mean, or should I say I'm working, me and, well, myself, Peter and the arranger are working around, you know. I mean, there are some songs that are built for it. The King is Dead is one, for instance, and Tracks of My Tears, I love what what Rob Taggart has. Yeah, they're very jazzy, so you would expect it to kind of... Well, yeah, but, but but there's just room, to be honest, Jennifer. It is just room. If you listen to Call Me, We Close Our Eyes, and The King... Well, especially Call Me and We Close Our Eyes, because of Gary Stevenson Productions, there is no room in there. I mean, every time Pete stops singing, something, you know, there's like a... It's certainly a kitchen sink production. So it's been interesting in that the ballads have been have been very, very smooth sailing to, to get done, whereas we've had to really, you know, work hard to to find a spot for the orchestra within the more up-tempo tunes, um, just because, you know, we are not a, we're not a three-chord trick band. You know, we're, our productions are quite complicated, but we've, we've got it to work. It sounds good. Um, so, yeah, as I say, that's... Uh, that's going to be quite a night on March the 20th at the Palladio. I'm certainly going to celebrate, but I'll do it afterwards, <laughs> not before. <laughs> and you're touring with Paul Young too in May before the summer festivals kick off. Yeah, Paul. Well, I've known Paul forever. I mean, we knew Paul back in the day. We shared a bass player for a while, Pino Palladino, is a friend to this day. Um, we toured Australia a couple of times with Paul on the bill. Um, and um, Paul's also done some writing with me. Now, that was a few years ago now, but he's been around the house a few times. He's a lovely guy. He, he's in the same, you know, when you try to put these things together, you know, what you're looking for is common ground. And he's a soul singer, Pete's a soul singer. So, um, yeah, we're really looking forward to that. It's going to be a gas, as they say. Just before we end, are you still playing backgammon pound a point? No, no, I've stopped playing backgammon for a pound a point. I, I stopped playing backgammon for a pound a point um, back in 19, I don't know, 70-something or other, 79 when I was working in an office and we used to play every day. But the guy who ran the place, who owned it, had me around his house one night and played me at backgammon, took far too much money off me. And it actually saved me uh, money, Genevieve, because after that I went, you know, um, no, don't gamble anymore. You're no good at it. And uh, so, thank goodness I, I learned my lesson then and not when all the money came in from the records. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, you hear these things of people, when they say Paul Merson uh, gambled away £7 million or something. I just, I don't know how long it, I, I mean, sorry, I'm, I'm not judging Paul. He's a, he's a, he, he seems to be a lovely guy. But, you know, that night did it for me. And that was just a few hundred quid. And I was like, right, don't ever do that again, you idiot. You know what I mean? <laughs> Are you still playing backgammon, though? I do, but see, this is where I'm going to contradict myself. Backgammon's much better when you're gambling because, it, <laughs> yeah, it, if if anyone's played it, I do. Right, well, then you know. So if you're not gambling, the doubling dice doesn't mean anything, you know. No, that's true. I play with my dad, and we don't use the doubling dice. Exactly, and the doubling dice—that's what got you. You know, I was in a sort of wide boy office, you know, selling advertising. I mean, everyone was a wide boy or a wide girl. 
And so someone would throw the, the doubling dice at you and you'd throw it straight back at them, just all bravado. And that means if you're playing for a pound a point, it can reach 64 quid quite quickly. And then if you lose a double game, it's like, oh, where's all that money gone? So, um, no, I don't... Uh, I do play back government occasionally if I'm on holiday. I'll take a little set along. But uh, it is more fun when you're gambling. But there you go. Well, I challenge you. Not not a pound a point, but I just challenge you. <laughs> well, next, if you ever come to a show... I'll just play for honour. Yeah, we'll just scoot <laughs> off somewhere for five minutes and you can you can trounce me, you know. I I, I know I know the opening moves. I know you're six and you're one and you're three and you're one and whatever else. So, there you go. My, I'll tell you something I've just realised. My boss did get a lot of double sixes that night though, and he did end up in jail. <laughs> so... I got a funny feeling that I might have been mm, loaded dice. I think I might have. <laughs> you got another double six, Robert. You're so jammy. And he's like, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> he actually ended up with Roger Cook. You know, I know you're in there, Mister. I won't say his name, but I know you're in there, Mister. Backgammon. <laughs> um, and he ended up inside for a little while. So, but I did learn an awful lot from him, um, mainly what not to do. Yeah. Richard, thanks so much. Best of luck with the shows and a very belated happy 35th anniversary and happy birthday. Well, thank you very much. And I've got to say thank you for your time and also for all the research you've done. I, I, you have been, you've brought up things that nobody else has bothered to find out. And that's really interesting for me as well. So thank you for your time. Thank you. All right. Huge thanks again to Richard for joining me. You can catch Go West with the Southbank Symphonia Orchestra in March, and they'll be touring and playing festivals all the way up until September. Find all the details on their website, gowest.org.uk. So that's it for season three. I'd like to thank all my guests who've generously given their time and shared their stories with me. I swear I don't pay them to say they enjoy chatting with me, but it's lovely that they recognise the time and effort I put into researching each chat. And I hope you enjoy listening to them too. That being said, I do make and fund this podcast all by myself, from booking guests to research, editing, publishing and promotion. It's a hell of a job and can sometimes feel a little bit lonely. So if you've enjoyed just one episode of the podcast this series, it would mean the world to me if you could please support it. Visit celebritycatchup.com where you can donate the cost of a coffee or whatever you'd like. Big thanks to everyone who donated this series. I'm hugely grateful for your help. I know times are tough, so even just sharing the podcast with a friend or on social media so others can discover it really helps too. Hit that follow button, leave a nice review and feel free to say hello to me on social media and we can have a chat. Thank you so much for listening this series. As I say every episode, I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from, so thank you so much for choosing this one. I'm going to take a little break, but I'll be back with a fourth series soon with more brilliant guests talking about their lives after that thing they did. So until next time, wherever in the world you are, thanks for listening. Listening.